Hello, everybody. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined again on Buddhist Geeks by a very special guest. I'm here with Roshi Joan Halifax. Thank you so much, Roshi Joan, for joining me here on the show. Thank you, Vince. My pleasure. Yeah, it's great to have you on here. And I, I can't believe this is the first time I've spoken with you on Buddhist Geeks. Um, I, I've I think we've went back and forth a couple times, maybe several years ago, and it didn't happen. And so I'm, I'm happy that it finally has. Um, and how this occurred is I was having tea with a mutual friend of ours recently, um, Raghu Marcus. And Raghu um, is the director of the Be Here Now Foundation, which uh, sort of manages Ram Dass's work. And he's just an excellent fellow and interesting guy. And I had had him on the show to talk about meditating on psychedelics, which is a series that we're kind of going deep into right now. And over tea, he said, hey, you really, really, really should talk to Roshi Joan about this topic because she has a lot of interesting things to say. And of course, he didn't tell me anything specifically about what you had to say, <laughs> but oh. he did strongly encourage me to speak with you. And so um, I thought that was a great idea. And uh, here we are. Here we are indeed. So I, I even uh, am amused by your question um, uh, with regards to psychedelics. But anyway, let's just um, plunge onward. I'm curious as to why you're so interested in psychedelics. Oh. And yeah, well, I mean, the, the, yeah, I mean, the short the short version of the story is. Um, I was a straight edge meditator for many years, um, meaning I, I, I was very, very, very committed to meditation practice and to kind of practicing in the way that the tradition described. And once I started teaching and working with people, you know, many years later, I kept finding that many of them got introduced to, I guess they're, the, the mysterious nature of their own consciousness through some sort of psychedelic use. And I know, I knew from the history of Buddhism in America that, you know, your generation kind of en masse had that experience as well. But I was a little surprised to see that that was continuing to be the case. And yet it wasn't as openly discussed as your generation had, had been able to discuss it. It was kind of, it was, it was behind closed doors. It was very much something you, you know, people didn't share openly so much. And part of what I realized was I really didn't have anything useful to offer these people or, or anything useful to say at all about this. And so I felt compelled actually to, to try psychedelics so I could understand what these students were experiencing and, and how they'd gotten into practice better. I didn't before that have really any interest in exploring it. Um, and so that's how I got into it. And then once I did, it was so obvious to me from the years of practice and retreat practice, et cetera, that there was so much overlap um, between the psychedelic experience and the meditative experience. Mm. Um, I, I mean, at least in my experience, I saw a lot of overlap and I saw a lot of differences as well. And so that was kind of the beginning of that inquiry for me personally. And then several years later, after talking to... Um, Roland Griffiths on the show and hearing about the work that, that he was doing at Johns Hopkins, especially with advanced meditators, um, just felt like an important topic, um, to explore publicly. And so that's why, um, that's why I started the series. Oh, 
Interesting. I, I'd love to hear uh, from you what you feel the overlaps are. Sure. Um, so, I mean, the first thing I noticed when doing psilocybin uh, a number of times, and, and, and I should frame this by saying the way that I and my friends did this, um, all of whom were also practitioners, we, we sort of did it in a similar way that we'd go like do a day long retreat. We started by setting our intentions and, um, you know, it's sharing that with each other, um, sitting for half an hour or so, then ingesting the substance, then sitting more, um, and then opening it up and just kind of being with each other and seeing what happened. And, um, in that experience, I, I felt like the same kinds of patterns of, um, phenomenological experience seemed to unfold. You know, there was the first, like the excitation and the excitement started to build. And then there was a physical discomfort and unpleasantness and nausea. And then it kind of opened up and it was brilliant and beautiful and everything was, you know, vivid and amazing and like a big spiritual experience. And then it kind of, everything turned toward death and dissolution and dissolving and fear and then as that opened up, it became broad and spacious and equanimous and profound in a very different way. Um, and I just found that that whole kind of the journey itself was the same exact journey that I'd been going through again and again and again in my practice and, and on retreats in particular, it's very obvious there. Um, and so that was really interesting. It felt like the same exact journey um, of, you know, ego birth and death and letting go. Mm -hmm. Um you know, that, that, that had been happening. And I, and I felt, it felt very familiar and it felt very, um, comforting isn't the right word, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's sort of like, oh yeah, this is, this is the nature of consciousness and it's not mm -hmm. dependent on whether I'm doing a drug or they're meditating or whatever. Like this is how consciousness is. So that's, that's, that's what I found similar. And then, but the, the differences were, you know, mostly to do with, um, you know, the way that sensory experience presented itself, especially in the visual field. Um, and of course, the I don't usually get nauseous meditating. <laughs> There's the same amount of nausea. So, some people do. <laughs> some people do. Right, right, right. Um, the other thing that was interesting, and I hadn't experienced this meditating, is when I, you know, went out on, on say, a walk, and I was out in the, in the foothills of Boulder at the time. I had this just general sense of being really connected to my ancestors and, and my, like both my personal ancestors and also like my human ancestors. Um, and just a feeling of like what well, we've all been like walking on this earth together and sitting on this earth together and just do, and trying to figure out what in the world is going on here, um, to get for so long. Um, I mean, I guess it's relatively speaking, not that long, but you know what I mean? Uh, and, and that was different. That was a unique experience. And then also, Later on, a few a few trips later, uh, I did a series of four journeys over about a month. Um, one of them, I had a really big, uh, I guess, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe it was a psychotic break, or uh, I kind of went temporarily uh, insane. Um, I lost touch with consensual reality. It was very scary. And I kind of come in and out of that state for a few days. Um, so it was very destabilizing and I'd experienced very destabilizing and kind of ego death experiences before with meditation, but none that had been this dramatic, um, and intense. Hmm. And so that was also different. So how, how did you work with that? 
I basically just curled up into a ball and cried. Uh, <laughs> it was supported by my friends, uh, and and fortunately uh, was able to somehow get reconfigured. Mm-hmm. And do you think that experience was um, beneficial? Yes, N- not for several months uh, after, but at a certain point, I started to 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 see it as really being quite profound. Mm-hmm. Um, and revealing a lot of my own delusions to me. Yeah, I'm curious is what um, what was the bridge or what were the ways that you were able to actually integrate that experience and find it meaningful? Uh, talking to one teacher in particular, David Loy, um, was really helpful because he kind of he kind of helped me see that this dramatic ego death experience wasn't like just a bad thing. <laughs> it mm-hmm. was also <laughs> a potentially an empowering thing. Um, and emotionally, intellectually, I knew that, but emotionally it was hard. It, it was, it took a time to, to sort of see that because it just, it, it shook things so, so, so deeply. Mm-hmm. And of course there are, uh, thank goodness for David, um, but there are not uh, structures or views in general in our society that uh, make it feel uh, safe and beneficial to go through an experience of destabilization. Yes. Oh, that's for sure. I, I remember after this experience happened, I was down at the like the medical clinic thinking maybe it would be good to get some sort of barbiturate or something to bring me down. Mm-hmm. And I went in there and it was immediately obvious uh, that this was even in Boulder. Um, you know, where I imagine a lot of people come into, into this clinic with a similar experience. <laughs> mm-hmm. But even there, it felt, yeah, it felt dangerous. Like if, if I share this, I, I ended up leaving. I didn't, I didn't end up mm-hmm. getting help there. I didn't think I, I didn't feel like I was going to get help there actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just think about those people who weren't necessarily primed by entheogens or psychedelics, but who go through that experience of destabilization and fragmentation, basically. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, where there's no view, uh, there's no sangha, there's no community, um, there's no support system um, for the process that one goes through in terms of a kind of reformation of our very personality. Mm. Yeah, I mean, scary. Really scary. Mm -hmm. Really Mm -hmm. scary. Well, it happened to me too, Vince. Mm. So, um, you know, at my age, I look back at what happened to me and uh, I have that sense of appreciation of, wow, I learned a lot. I would not prescribe it for anyone. Mm. It was, you know, a very, uh, and you can ask my ex-husband, Stan Groff, um, because he was there for part of what I went through. Um, how, how old were you, uh, when this, when this experience occurred? 30. Okay. Wow. I was the same age. There you are. So I'm 75. So you can imagine it's been 45 years. I still can, uh, recall the somatic aspect of my, uh, fragmentation. Very, Mm -hmm. very uncomfortable. And also knowing that I had to, you know, navigate in the, social world, um, uh, at least appear to be sane and to be responsible and responsive and feeling, uh, fragmented. So I think, I think, you know, probably, 
I wouldn't say I'm ambivalent with regards to um, uh, hallucinogens. I would say I'm discerning. Mm, that's great. And, and discerning in terms of recognizing that these kind of experiences not only happen, but happen pretty frequently. Would you say that? Uh, I would say um, they happen more frequently than most of the advocates uh, yes. want to uh, affirm. <laughs> But it's not to say that the experience, as you know from having gone through it, I know from having gone through it, it was a psychomental crisis similar to what a shaman goes through, mm. similar to what visionaries experience, um, yeah, a, a profound breakthrough. But there's no context um, to give it meaning, and there's no support uh, when you're in this fragmented state, for the most part. So, um, you know, I... I, in a conversation you and I had last month, I have a lot of respect for entheogens. I have more respect for my mind hmm. <laughs> and also my responsibility for being in the world in a clear and coherent way. And so, you know, my own uh, um, appreciation of the very slow uh, dissolution process um, with uh, the support of uh, a teacher and a community that happens in the experience of meditation um, without the sort of shock of, you know, what I know to, to be often the case in the breakthrough experience um, where integration is, is not always so easy. Right. Right. So I'm very this, respectful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes good sense um, to me. It's not a popular view among advocates however among advocates yeah so part of what part of part of what i've noticed is there's there's at least two different types of advocates uh in the buddhist scene i'd say and and or or that overlap with the buddhist scene and one one of them are the i, I call them the psycho the psychedelic evangelists mm -hmm. you know they're sort of like it's always good for everyone all of the time let's you know, put it in the, put it in the water supply kind of mentality. Um, and then the others are a little more, you know, the psychedelic Buddhists, they're advocating for it in a general way, but also kind of recognize the, the downsides and the potential dangers and, you know, aren't, aren't sort of so absolutistic about the conversation. Um, have you noticed a similar distinction? Yeah, uh, there's always a spectrum in these kinds of things. I, I also think it points to another uh, more interesting problem. Um, if we look at meditation as a path of realization, um, that with the commodification of meditation and mindfulness practice, and the absence of qualified teachers, and the absence actually of context where deep practice can happen, the kind of transformation that um, one would uh, could anticipate happening in the experience of meditation is less accessible. Yes, in, in that sort of mindfulness context? Well, it, you know, let me just say it again, because I think, I think you went and had a sip of water and tuned out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me take a sip of water now then you can say it again um, it's more that um, the kind of commitment it takes to have 
a deep, grounded, uh, determined practice. It's not just mindfulness. It's just the general culture of meditation in the West. Um, the teachers who are willing to commit um, to students in terms of their development and the communities that um, share common values and ethos and really create the context for this kind of practice are rare if uh, even, I don't even know if they're present. Really? That's wow. Right. That's a profound statement. You, you, you include, would you include your own community in that? Yeah. I mean, we are, we're in the medium of Western culture. So, you know, our young residents come here. Um, they are, have a kind of interest, but for the most part, you know, um, the kind of dedication and determination that, uh, say, some of the older practitioners engaged in or were subject to, in, you know, in terms of their own viria, um, is not so much in the culture today. It's kind of like, well, sort of parachuting in to uh, meditation or to a retreat center or even a, re a longer retreat experience. Some of our people have done, you know, long-term retreat. But you realize that the kind of support, the ethos that's really essential um, in uh, creating a space where these experiences can be anticipated and where they're valued. That hardly exists in this country. I and would yeah. say it hardly exists anywhere, excuse me, not just in this country, but anywhere. Hmm. And when you say these experiences, what, what experiences are you referring to? Um, the whole developmental cycle that occurs in the context of an ongoing meditation practice of intensive meditation, not just, you know, like five minutes in the morning or 20 minutes in the morning or a little snatching a little meditation here and there. Okay. And, and it, you talked about uh, Kensho in our last conversation briefly. You just mentioned that. Is, is that, is that part of this um, story, the developmental process? Is that how you see it, where, where it's leading to, or at least maybe initially? Well, you know, there's the sudden school and there's the gradual school. Yes. So, you know, in the sudden school, Kensho is profoundly val valued. And uh, I think it's a, it's a Dharma door. You know, it can be a taste that turns you around, just like dropping 600 mics of acid can. <laughs> Suddenly, you know, you, your view changes. Your uh, way of perceiving this moment is transformed. But um, uh, how you integrate it, how you mujo do no taigen, how you actualize the way in your everyday life, that's something else, completely different. And, how and do you, you bring it into um, this ordinary moment? And, and you're saying you feel like the communities and teachers and the situation here doesn't really support that process? I'd say for the most part... Um, you know, everything from uh, just talking about meditation in a corporate context mm -hmm. um, to a weekend intensive to uh, more intensive retreat environments like uh, at Upayo or uh, um, uh, Tipton Children's Place up in the Northwest or Zen Mountain Center. Um, you know, even these contexts um, are challenged because of living in a social context where um, practice has been fundamentally commodified. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's a, I think it's a very tough sell to get somebody to settle down to really drop into practice and to get off their iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> so what so okay so what is it about the so I know this is this is this feels like we're circling we're going to circle back around um so I'll just go with go with the circle here what what does it feel like what, to you what is it what is it about the commodification and the um and the and the broader context that that prevents people from I'll just say going deep well, I think part of it has to do with the fragmentation of our attention mm. through our social media. Oh, that's, I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know you're on Twitter um, and uh, that's something, yeah, that's something I've noticed over the last 10 years, the, the fragmentation of attention, uh, my own attention has been, it's been, per, you know, perplexing and, and weird to watch that happen. Right. And um, so, you know, it's a much longer conversation and I probably uh, am so, what could I say? I'm such an evangelist for focused attention at this point in my life for people just being able to first cultivate bodhicitta. You know, why are you taking psychedelics or why are you meditating or why are you in the corporate world or why are you sitting with dying people to really, you know, examine um, what their lives are about in terms of the development of moral character. Mm-hmm. And 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 to understand, you know, to come to some deep realization that uh, we're in this web of interconnectedness, and that we're here to awaken in order to serve, in order to end suffering. So, you know, that's part of the issue. And then the next is to just be able to train our attention to be have it rest on one thing for a sufficiently long period of time that we can perceive reality in a more accurate way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So, th- so that's kind of different objectives than um, uh, our use uh, of psychedelics. Now I think in, you know, various indigenous cultures um, there were similar motivations, but a little different. In, in what ways do you, do you think they were different? I think that um, our own culture is much more individual oriented. Sure. And uh, in you know indigenous cultures in these small scale communities that live close to the earth, the relationship between the community, the human realm, the spiritual realm, earth beings, you know, this kind of pro- pro- interconnectedness realm of interconnectedness, which reveals itself you know, in the process of meditation, also in uh, often in the context of uh, the use of entheogens. But um, does it motivate you to um, live a life that is directed toward um, ending suffering, the, the bodhisattva vows, if you will? Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that becomes, for me, the relevant question. Mm-hmm. So- but, you know... If you can't, if your attention is fragmented, you don't necessarily perceive things so accurately. Right, right. That that sort of uh, the te- the telescope of the mind has to be polished well. It does to observe things useful. Um, okay, this is in, this is really interesting because um, you know the the Dharma scene that I came up in was. Well, two scenes. One was the insight meditation scene. Um, Jack Cornfield and Trudy Goodman, Joseph Goldstein, um, many of your colleagues 
friends. Um, and then the other scene was with a couple of uh, Gen X teachers who also trained in the similar monasteries, Mahasi Sayada centers in Burma and uh, Malaysia. And they were uh, almost like conservative in the sense that they really taught uh, they taught the states and stages leading to stream entry and beyond. They were really state, you know, stage based, you know, hyper effort focused, you know, go on retreat, go for, you know, as long as it takes to get stream entry and then continue to deepen your insight. But what they didn't really focus on. And so, so on the one hand, I guess I'm saying this, why I'm saying this is because I know many, many people now through that scene and, and through the insight tradition, which is a little harder to find the people in the insight tradition um, because they don't speak about it as openly as they do in this other, this other community, the pragmatic Dharma community. But I've known a lot of people that have experienced these deep and profound meditative insights, um, including those that use social media. But I think what you're describing of the turn toward you know, really embodying and integrating that understanding in a way that um, makes one's life significantly different, how, how you live and uh, serving. And, uh, you know, that, that seems to be a much harder thing to do. Um, well, it's, it's a different Dharma door. I mean, this, the Mahayana Dharma door really emphasizes selflessness, unselfishness. And um, I, I think not to say that the, Theravadan Dharma door um, emphasizes selfishness, but very specifically, the notion of the cultivation of bodhicitta allows us to uh, move off this kind of self-improvement program in a different kind of way. Because um, you know you're constantly moving off the the experience of of selfing, and I think this is one of the issues that is really fascinating because um, selfing is something that fundamentally undermines our integrity. You know, when we're selfish, when we're selfish, when we're self-centered, when we're self-pitying, when we're self-referencing, you know, it's when we're always focusing on our own advantage, fundamentally at the expense of others. And so uh, it's one of the aspects of the Mahayana perspective that I've found, you know, uh, pretty edifying. So how do we how do we how do we loop this back to psychedelics? Well, <laughs> you can I, help me. I'll leave that up to you. You're the interviewer. <laughs> I'm the integrator. Okay. No, I said the interviewer. I I mean. Oh, interviewer. Oh, the interviewer. Okay. We're, you could say we're the disintegrators, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah, you know it's it it it's it's it's. Hmm. I mean, I feel like what you're describing is uh, a conversation I've heard happening um, a lot lately, um, especially in response to the mindfulness movement. And, um, you know, th this idea of, of meditation being somehow disconnected from, you know, the, the, the other training of, you know, morality or ethics, you know, in the traditional Buddhist model, um, that, that somehow those are, those are no longer bundled together. They're no longer an integrated package. They're kind of like you meditate to, uh, to, for whatever purpose you, you want, essentially. Well, I, you know, I think that's true and also not true. I think Johnny, who, you know, was the, is the kind of father or grandfather of the MBSR movement, um, felt that, and I think it's the case that the ethical perspective is implicit 
within the medium of mindfulness, as, as he articulated mindfulness and developed practices that he felt were consumable by uh, the lay public. Um, it's just that the lay public, and I think this includes all of us, whether we're Zen priests or even uh, tried and true monastics, we are so conditioned by our society um, that it's difficult to actually get beneath um, what is what we're in the grip of. Mm. And, you know, again, around uh, social media and attention, the more our attention is fragmented, the more difficult it's going to be to have any kind of wisdom. But anyway, um, you can ask me anything about psychedelics. I probably have no good answers. But <laughs> well, you, you mentioned you mentioned your ex husband Stanislav Grof, and uh, I understand that you both were at, at a certain point working with dying cancer patients, and that somehow there was a psychedelic component to this. Um, I wanted to see if that was true, and, and if so, if you could share a little bit about about the work that you all did together. Yeah, so um, Stan was a director of the psychedelic program at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, and he and I married in 72, and I joined that program, and we use LSD as an adjunct to psychotherapy in working with dying cancer patients. There are also ancillary programs um, where uh, therapists and chaplains um, were exposed to psychedelics, I think people who were addicted, but Stan and I specifically focused on the work with dying people. We wrote a book called The Human Encounter with Death, which um, details that experience. And it was, for me, literally mind-blowing um, in the sense that uh, the people that we worked with were not, um, uh, you know, they were everything from... And the MD, I remember, who was dying of pancreatic cancer, the uh, the therapist who had uh, ovarian cancer, the bricklayer, the old woman. I mean, you know, they were there's a range of individuals in that project, and that project is, uh, as I said, described in detail in uh, the book we did, "The Human Encounter with Death," and. Um, it was specifically for people who were suffering from intractable pain, who had severe fear of death, who were difficult to manage medically, who were suffering from depression. And so we, we had measurements to ascertain whether the um, experience of psychedelics was beneficial in terms of any of these uh, obstacles that dying people typically encounter. And it, the case is that, um, yeah, uh, the outcomes were really positive. Um, and uh, the way that the sessions were conducted, how people were prepared, the way we integrated the family system into the preparation and integration process, um, in a way, it would be hard not to have a good outcome. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So this goes back to the, this goes back to what we were talking about before of like the container or the, the context or the, you know, the background in which something's occurring, whether it's meditation or psychedelics or whatever. Um, do you see that as really being the critical part of all this, of this conversation? Well, I think set and setting are critical and Stan and I wrote about this. Um, you know, the, the set, the view, the expectations, 
um, the preparation, uh, the integration phase, uh, the integration of the family system into the process, not taking the psychedelics, but really approving of, supporting uh, the dying person in, you know, doing this experience. All, I think uh, that was key. And also the setting, the fact that, you know, it was like a kind of a very comfortable living room where people took the psychedelics. Um, it was a very loving atmosphere. So um, there was a lot of respect and care in, the, in terms of the set and setting. I think that is part of it. I think also, um, you know, I only worked with Stan as a co-therapist. So, you know, I, I didn't work with the other co-therapists. They had good outcomes, but I only know from my experience of working side by side with Stan. And, you know, having people who are sensitive and pretty intelligent um, by your side as you're going through the psychedelic experience and you're dying is mm. uh, not a bad thing. <laughs> Hmm. Yes, so, it makes sense. <laughs> you know, and you know what's wonderful. Uh, still at the East Bay uh, of Johns Hopkins, um, Bill Richards is still there. You know, he was part of our project in the 1970s. So, you oh know, wow, guy he's still has doing a, research. He's still part of that research team. Oh, wow. And did the research get shut down at a certain point? Um, um, with- I'm not sure how it terminated. Stan and I moved to the West Coast. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, you know, kind of what happened, but I have a feeling that it sort of perked along um, very quietly in the background, uh, probably on the West Coast with uh, some of the the clinicians who were had permission to use psilocybin, not LSD. And um, also then, you know, what Roland's doing at, um, you know, on the Hopkins campus. Yes. Yeah. It, I, I spoke I spoke to someone who ha- had more, much more knowledge than I did about the sort of the history of psychedelics in the U.S. And, and, and he, he sort of mentioned, this is Eric Davis, he mentioned that, you know, there, there was a couple decades, like the 80s and 90s in particular, where, um, you know, psychedelic research and just in general, culturally kind of went went underground. And then now there seems to be a sort of resurgence um, or some sort of, you know, coming back up to the surface again. Yeah. And also um, Vanya Palmers, who's a longtime Zen practitioner. Yes. um, Support. I think he still supports this research in Switzerland. Yes. And isn't he, he's doing, he's doing some sort of a combination of psilocybin and Zen Sashin practice, as I understand. Um, I actually don't know. Uh, I just, you know, Vanya and I are old friends, but I haven't talked to him in the past few years. Okay. But um, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, some, he's someone we, we should, uh, I should have on the show at some point. Yeah, he's, he's, he's really fascinating. He's a great guy. Okay. So I think you find it worthwhile talking with him. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded of our previous call. We had a quick check-in to talk about what we're going to talk about today. And you mentioned that because there's so really so little that we know um, about both the benefits and the deleterious effects of psychedelic use in our culture right now, that it's really in some ways an open field of inquiry. Absolutely. 
and I, I, it's cool to hear, you, you know, your personal relationship to it and your, you know, and, and, and it's, it's weird. You're, you're both on the, on the personal side, you, you're, you don't seem, you seem to be very cautious about, you know, just, just, you know, especially cavalier usage of this stuff. It's like, no, but, but then also you're, you're kind of pointing to, uh, you know, the research that you were part of, uh, in, in a way that seems positive. So it, it seems like that open inquiry, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not either or. I don't think it's either or. I think there are many Dharma doors. I know, uh, you know, most of the well-known long-term practitioners my age um, definitely went through the psychedelic experience and benefited. And probably some of us paid, but <laughs> we also benefited. Did you so, see that personally? Because I, 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 I was listening to Camille Paglia the other day, and she said she saw some of the greatest minds of her generation destroyed by LSD. Well, you know, probably a bunch of people have been destroyed by meditation or by dharma or by Ooh. sangha. So, you know, let's yes. Let's, yes. let's talk about the fact that um, uh, the the Buddhism, in, particularly institutionalized Buddhism, has caused um, a lot of harm. Uh, and I mean, okay, so there's some obvious that's ways. That's another conversation. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. But but that's that's actually been a central theme in this series because what I've found is that it's it's really easy to talk about the downsides of psychedelics. It's, it's a little harder to talk about the downsides of, say, intensive retreat practice or um, – you know, you're, you're pointing to other things as well, you know, in terms of the institutions and, and, and probably. And, and know, the teachers. Power. Yeah. Can you say more? Well, I think you can probably say as much as I can about this. <laughs> you know, every, every stick is two ends, so to speak. But I mean, I, I think that um, power dynamics, sexual boundaries, um, exploitation, delusion, uh, all of these things have afflicted not only Buddhist teachers in the West, and not all Buddhist teachers, but, you know, um, people who have so-called moral authority, whether they're, you know, Buddhists or in other uh, spiritual traditions, um, and who uh, become blunted to uh, the uh, moral responsibility that is necessary when one does have, quotes, moral authority. And, um, you know, there's a. This is a really critical issue in our culture right now around Me Too, mm-hmm. around sexual dynamics, um, and around power, and uh, the blunting of sensitivity um, in these power dynamics between, for example, teachers and students. You know, we see it so obviously in the political realm, but um, it also exists within uh, the, the realm of our religious institutions. Okay, so this is this is going into a slightly different direction, but uh, it's interesting, and I've, I've been we thinking. Can, about why don't we preserve this piece for another conversation? Because okay. I, I yeah. think you know, Vince, you want to stay mostly on the psychedelic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm do. happy to have another conversation about this because it's you know it's a, an issue. It's it's an important topic, but it's not you know we're not talking about that today. We can talk about it later. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, so, so, so your point, going back to your point, you know, we, we can, you know, so, yes, some people have 
their their experience has been really disrupted not not just like the disruption i experienced but like serious disruption through from psychedelic use and also people have experienced serious destabilization destabilization disruption through you know uh buddhist practice and in buddhist communities uh and i agree with i actually really i think that's a really important point because it kind of um you know in terms of the inquiry it's not like saying okay um psychedelics are bad and we should avoid them um and Buddhist practice is good, and everyone should do this. <laughs> um, you know, and I know, no, you know, I don't hear anyone saying that like that. But, but it's almost I hear that perspective emerging. Sometimes it sounds something like that, and I, I you know, I'm, I'm kind of like with Trungpa on this. You know, in terms of the contemplative path, like I don't think I don't, I never encourage people. I don't, I'm not an evangelist for meditation in any sense. Like I don't think people should meditate um, unless they uh, already have they've already crossed a threshold, um, where they, you know, even if, even if they don't meditate, they're still, they're, they're still stuck having seen something profound that they don't know how to integrate into their lives. And, and it's going to haunt them until they figure it out. You know, for those people, I think, you know, meditation is a, can be a great path to, to kind of working through that, working that out. Um, but, and that's what often happens on psychedelics is that people, you know, you call it a Dharma door. People have those breakthrough experiences so much in some say, in some ways it seems like it's much easier to have a breakthrough by taking a large amount of substance than it is say, say meditating, um, at least med not meditating a lot. Would you, well, would you say that's true? You know, I, I don't think one breakthrough is, um, going to be, uh, uh, life changing for most people. Um, it's the integration of that breakthrough um, that I think is what's critical. The, yeah. The vision sure. itself is okay. It's just wonderful uh, for the most part. But, um, you know, it's how do we integrate this? How do we make sense of this in our lives? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's the work in the aftermath. Or yeah. I call it, it's the aftermath. It's the math you have to do <laughs> in order to make sense of that experience in a way that isn't just self-serving or self-destroying. Mm. So I, I don't know. I don't know if you find this with, uh, you know, with Upaya. Um, one, one thing I find is people that wash under the shores of the meditative, wash <laughs> under the Buddhist shores, oftentimes they have a really similar story, which is, you know, X number of years ago, I was doing you know, meditation or I took psychedelics or I, you know, was having sex with my girlfriend or whatever, you know, what, whatever it is that there's some sort of experience they point back to and say, this really impacted me. And I, it's, it's, I still don't, I, I still think about it and I want to understand it better. And I want to know what, what was, what that was and how I can move forward. And for whatever reason, I read something or I heard something and it sounded like they were describing this experience that I'd had. Um, well well, uh, what I find is most people that I encounter uh, who have dedicated themselves to practice usually have a different story, which is uh, this, they have a story that's something like this. I'm really suffering and I want to find a way out of suffering or I'm really suffering and I want to transform that suffering to not just benefit myself, but to benefit others. So they, you know, it's different. It's different. It's a different. Would you say that maybe is a different Dharma door? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, that my Dharma door, so to speak, uh, usually uh, is about some kind of uh, self improvement issue. Mm. You know, like I'm suffering and I want to get out of it. Yes, yes. Or uh, I want to be better at such and such. And um, that's a you know that's a valid motivation um, for uh, early stage yes. practice. Right. Just as, uh, you know, I had a moment of cosmic consciousness and um, I want to make sense of this in my life. Yes. That's another valid rationale. Right. There's some sort of cognitive dissonance and I want to, I want to, I mean, you could say that's a kind of suffering too. It's like, I, I don't know what this experience means and who I am and I want to figure it out. But one of the things that I say, Vince, about people who dedicate themselves to practice by virtue or through the realization of suffering, of their own suffering, is everybody's suffering. Just yeah. this set of people happens to recognize that they're suffering. Yeah. And they want to transform it. I, I mean, yes. everybody is is in this game of suffering. Yes, yes. And that's what I mean by the by like there's a turn or there's a there's something, there's some critical turn that happens where someone starts to be aware of how how bad it is. And want it like to, to the point where they want to try to try to, you know. Uh, actually, I, I realize as I'm saying that that's not true because I think everyone realizes how bad it is, <laughs> but I, everyone seems to handle that that differently or, well, or respond yeah, to it differently. I'm not sure they do. Hmm. I am. I have uh, encountered, you know, increasing numbing and increasing hmm. apathy. And uh, moral apathy is something that I think is, you know, at, on the rise in our culture. And I think part of it is, you know, through, you know, addiction to our devices and other addictions that we're, what could I say, subject to. Yeah. What, what do you think we're numbing out uh, uh, to? Oh, I, uh, are, are you kidding? Hmm. What happened yesterday? How yeah. do you integrate 17 children being gunned down by this young white male and not, you know, well, it's a young I, white American male. The first thing I think is I really feel for our young white males. Honestly, that was my yeah. first thought. And then I, and then my second thought is, oh my God, again, I cannot believe this. And then what's the next thought after that? Because it can't be, oh my God, again, it, we have to have some action yeah. that follows yeah, to be to be honest, um, you know, I I don't really know. That's, I mean, I feel like our country is in the throes of that mm -hmm. because the NRA. Well, this is a you know another conversation, mm -hmm. um, but I posted something on uh, that I saw on social media. You know, how I want to live in a country that loves our children more than uh, a country that loves our guns. Mm. I mean, you know, what kind of world? I say, yeah. It's one young white male after another who's gunning down these kids, gunning down people. It's really a staggering situation, but we are numbing out to it. Yeah. We're our, yeah sorry. No, no, I, I was actually going to agree with you, but I was also going to say one thing I've noticed too is that we're creating, and this is something Brene Brown talks about, we're creating a false sense of intimacy with each other she calls it common enemy intimacy when we sort of all kind of gang up as a tribe and agree that this is the problem and this is the cause of the problem and this is the solution. 
without really leaning in and getting curious and talking and, and getting to know um, what other people on some other side of these issues actually think, feel, understand. And that to me seems like one of the biggest problems, both socially and also even in this conversation about psychedelics also. Um, you know, as soon as I started doing this uh, series, uh, I got some pushback. I'm not going to mention any names, um, but if people are interested, they just have to look online. But, you know, some, someone immediately uh, basically called me a worthless piece of shit drug dealer publicly before even having this conversation. And I'm like, okay, well, how in the world are we supposed to, you know, if you, you, you probably have something valuable to say, but how can we even begin to have that conversation when the start of the conversation is a personal attack? Um, you know, and that's the thing I, I find really challenging is like, uh, you know, especially when white male is mentioned in this conversation, because I'm a white male. I'm not just a white male. Well, my, I, my, grand, I'm my grandfather's Palestinian. Yeah, my grandfather's Palestinian. But so I, I can kind of I can kind of identify with both sides of this issue. And that's a really difficult place to be in um, because everyone is so fucking polarized right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's true, but it's also part of calling it out. And, um, you know, how do we stand in this sort of uh, realm of moral apathy um, where there's increasing apathy or numbness and not name things, even though, you know, not everybody should name things, but at right. least some people should name things. Yeah. And how we name things. You, I mean, that seems to be important. I, I completely agree. You know, I, I mean, considering how the the... Uh, implication of this kind of um, tragedy is happening at the hands of uh, people of color, for example, when in truth, um, what's happened in these school shootings is not that is not that at all. So it's like you, you know, you we're being fed multiple realities and. Um, it's fun. John, last night, John Dunn gave a, a really a interesting talk here at UPI. It's up on Facebook about fake news. And, you know, what he said, it's kind of all fake news. It's all mm. constructed. Um, so how do we develop the quality of heart and mind that allows us to drop down and to perceive things, to see reality more clearly, and also the, the particularities uh, of uh, a certain aspect of reality, including, as you say, how are young men or, you know, males being raised in our Western culture? What, what, what creates the sense of incredible disempowerment um, that uh, these males are uh, caught, the grip of disempowerment that they're caught in, where they have to take power into their hands in terms of an AK-47? Yeah, I think that, I think, I mean, to me, that is the really, yeah, that's such a critical question. And, and, and as soon as we ask the question, that's where, then there's a huge divergence in perspective and in understanding of, of the causes of that. Um, and that's where it seems like people get really polarized, but everyone's, I mean, everyone that I know really cares about that question. And that to me is very interesting. And also, you know, um, how does this play into what your and my friend David Lloyd talks about vis-a-vis -vis structural violence? You know, how have the corporations basically, let's say the NRA in this case, you know, basically co-opted our political system? But anyway, 
you can see I'm polarized. Well, I, I mean, I, who, I mean, I have not found anyone who isn't. So, um, <laughs> is I mean, is the goal to not be polarized, or I don't, I don't think so. I, I you know, um, Thich Nhat Hanh, when I was practicing with him, was very clear that um, we have to stand up at the risk of our own life in situations of injustice, and when children get gunned down, that is a situation of injustice. But there's another kind of injustice, and I think you were bringing it up, and that is, um, you know, how do we create the conditions in our society, you know, excuse me, in our society where um, uh, people wouldn't even consider of any age doing something like this. Yeah, or if they did consider it, they would be able to... They'd be be horrified. Yeah, something there'd be some mechanisms in place or relationships in place that could, you know, address those feelings or the, the you know whatever despair that is coming out of. Yeah. Anyway, but you know, back to psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like our conversation just doesn't want to go back there, but <laughs> No, I'm go, I'm please. fine to go back there. You know, if if taking entheogens um decreases violence in the world, then I think that um, we should look seriously at the use of entheogens and the contextualization of the uh, ingestion of the sacred plants, uh, you know, as a means for transforming our culture. Um, if meditation has that potential, we should do the same. Uh, if education has that potential, we should do the same. So, you know, my question always kind of comes back to the heart of how are we feeding or, uh, yeah, the, the, the seeds of violence within our store consciousness? And how do we create uh, a system? How do we create a system where um, there is uh, the realization of Pratichu Samupada, of dependent co-arising? And, you know, certainly um, entheogens contributed to my sense of that. Yes. Again, going back to uh, Camille Paglia, she she was also mentioning that in her perspective, you know, the, the, the real revolution of the 1960s was about coming into contact with cosmic consciousness and the body and sensory activation and sensory experience. Um and I found that I found, of course, it made sense when she said that, but I hadn't really ever, you know, considered it like that. Um, well, certainly, the sexual revolution was part of it, and the emphasis on mind-body integration, and the sort of back to the earth movement. Yes. So it, I think that she's absolutely right, and yeah. yet, uh, in a certain way. Um, uh, I think that we're coming round to that point, yes. you know, once yes. again. Yeah. You know, to your point about integration it almost feels like, you know, um, you know, my generation and future generations, like our task is to integrate part of what happened in the sixties and seventies, like to actually figure out how to make sense of that, um, huge explosion of, uh, you know, counter, uh, cultural exploration and inquiry, you know, because it was so, it was so polarized 
then, um, you know, these two, they're very clear cultural camps. And, and now it's like, okay, we, we live in a different world where we're all, we really are all interconnected in a way that's, um, can be mapped on, you know, you can, you know, LinkedIn has this new network visualization tool where you can sort of see your actual, you know, connections through that network. And we all have these, you know, we're, we're hubs and connectors and we're, you know, we're so inter interlinked with one another, um, in the, in these networks of, of relationship, um, already. Yeah. And, um, also I just want to say as somebody who was, um, part of the sixties is that we were very romantic. Yeah, sure. Idealistic. Yeah. And, um, what I think is happening today, uh, is fascinating to observe, which is uh, a heavy uh, increase of cynicism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've heard the term hypercynicism used by one philosopher, and I really like that term. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't like the. I don't like what it describes. But <laughs> well, one, yeah. do, one doesn't like the feeling, doesn't, doesn't <laughs> like the presence of it, and one doesn't particularly appreciate it when it arises yeah. uh, within one's own consciousness. And mm. yet, um, it is uh, becoming a, a kind of norm. Yeah. Hmm. You know, and uh, in that re regard, it's, you know, if entheogens or meditation can return us to respect, to care, to compassion, to regard, to kindness, you know, all these, this extraordinary suite of pro-social qualities, then wonderful. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.